0: Powercast with your hosts Jane Steinberg and David Bieting. This episode of the Powercast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcasts.com/powercast. That's audiblepodcasts.com/powercast. Now on with the show. Now one of the reasons David that I was interested in having a discussion on the contactee movement is because it extends to the very core of UFOs. We've always had this element that claims, hey folks, we don't just see things, we experience them. We've met the people or entities or beings behind them. Well, this indeed seems to be the case though. I
1: guess we'll ask uh, our guest what is the earliest of the contactee
0: reports? Because I'm guessing they started in the 50s, not in the 40s, or am I wrong? Well, it's very interesting. That's something that Nicholas Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, will be talking about. And that is that, yes, George Adamski said he had his contact in 1952, but you had people like Daniel Fry, who claimed that he was taken around the country in a flying saucer back in 1949. So maybe oh, it was 49. Okay. And right. Maybe it's one of those one-upsmanship things. And what I gather, Fry only claims to have had one contact. Am I, am I wrong or am I right about that? He had one experience. He never no. went beyond that one experience mm. with mm. this A-Lan or Alan who took him out in a flying saucer. That was it. But he built the whole movement, and I guess a whole business, <laughs> out of this one experience. Then just having that one experience may be more than anybody needs you know i we must be doing something wrong
1: here gene i've had all of these bizarre experiences and uh we're not exactly raking in cash not that we're that's our main goal here but we must just be doing something wrong i guess maybe we're not looking to peddle bs to people
0: Well, you know, part of the thing is I get no cash and I get no experiences. I can't even sell a UFO (laughs) contact because I've had none. Now, maybe I can invent one. But I still think, and this is one of the things I wanted to explore with Nick, I still think that there are, at the core of some of these claims, real experiences. I think one exception... To that rule, might be Howard Menger. It raises a whole can of worms. And I'm going to want to ask Nick about it because I read his short piece about it, but I think it's something that goes to the whole core of the contact experience, and that is involvement by government authority. Right.
1: That's something that he touches upon. Well, he more than touches upon. His book raises a lot of questions about that whole issue. There seems to be this covert involvement in this stuff, using it as a front. Using it as a mechanism with which to evaluate like mind games with people, which i don 't want to say it poisons the whole pool, but in reading through this book gene it doesn 't seem like many of these have much veracity at all any of these these contact he claims I mean uh, Nick gets into specific cases that were obviously nonsense, and then you have the cases where there 's some weirdness tied in with the claims, and then you have, you you sort of stir in this whole covert aspect, this whole disinformation aspect that's got government uh, involvement of some sort. And what you end up with is this really thick forest that you can barely see through. And I don't know, ultimately, I wonder if learning about these contactees, these self-claimed contactees, if it gives us any insight into the phenomenon at all and and the thing is that Nick in the book brings up towards the end the whole trickster aspect and when we had our Christopher O'Brien show there were some people on the forums who said that I kind of didn't understand uh, to some extent what was going on and they might be Heck, right that about might
2: that
0: be normal. none of <laughs> yeah, us understand yeah, what's yeah. going on I mean when we had our show just this past week on conspiracy theories I was mentioning in the forum something about the fact that The global warming climate gate phenomenon is really something probably generated by the neocons, Fox News, and there may be a story there, but the story may just be they stole these emails. It's not the question of global warming and whether there's any authenticity to it, but the agenda of people who oppose it. And there are a lot of scientists who, the other conspiracy theory goes, work for oil companies. They don't want to deal with environmental issues at the expense of having to be environmentally friendly about automobiles that have better gas mileage. They use less gas, buy less of their products. So they basically get these hired guns out to go to talk shows and say, oh, global warming, it's all a farce. Yeah, it, it doesn't it, really it. exist. And then it was kind of funny, and this gets back to an evidentiary thing, where I mention a site that has a source of a lot of the errors in this climate gate, the mm. fact that people mm. don't understand scientific lingo, that scientists are talking to one another, and they're actually just using terms that maybe don't mean the same thing in the rest of the world. And that's normal. They're talking shop. You know, so, you know, to them, it's a whistleblower reveals these facts. No, people hacked emails. They took them out of context to advance a political agenda. And I pointed to a site called MediaMatters.org, which is a progressive or liberal site. I really like MediaMatters. I think it's a great site. So I said, okay, guys, find out what they say. And let's go from there. But the people who criticized that didn't look at what Media Matters actually wrote. Well, of course not. Uh, they look uh, at, oh, it's a liberal organization. Don't believe them. Right, no, it's not right. whether it's liberal, conservative, or nondescript. It doesn't matter what their philosophy is. Is the information authentic or not? Exactly. And nobody will address that. We
1: brought it up on the show before. We'll bring it up again, Gene. It really does seem like we live in an environment today where everything is just completely... Polarized. Either you're for or against, either you're A or B, you're black, white, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. There seems to be so little consideration of the gray areas in between the extremes that, and I can understand why this is the case. Because basically, it's very easy to get people worked up and to get them sort of fixated on one set of parameters and just go and which of course doesn't involve thinking let's remember that when you take a stance that's pre-manufactured prefabricated and you're basically parroting party lines you don't have to think Uh, all of the thinking has been done for you all you have to do is take the position and defend it and we see this in every walk of life i mean really truly not just our little sandbox and the political sandbox but we see this everywhere and and i sometimes wonder and I don't know, you know, half the time, I don't know what the hell I'm saying anyway. But I sometimes wonder if this is a product of a dual hemisphere brain. I, I sometimes wonder if, if this whole issue of, you know, this this these two extremes, this polarity, um, that we tend to evaluate the world with—they are for us, they are against us. Well, is it our brain, our, our 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 bifurcated brain? You know, you've got you've got the two hemispheres. I think that's even a wrong term I just used—but you've got the two hemispheres. Um, you know, everything in humans seems to be about this bilateral symmetry. You know, two eyes, two
0: ears, two 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 nostrils. Well, it's also uh, a way of surviving. Remember, we still came up from the apes, allegedly, although, you know, there here we think, <laughs> although there are people who think that the earth is really 6,000 years old. You know what? Before we get into our views of evolution <laughs> and divine creation, we're not done. Creation, Here's my view we're not done evolving yet, but go ahead. No. I don't think we've started, actually. That, that might be, be right. the problem. But, you know, part of what the Contactee movement supposedly brought about was the quest or the desire or the feeling that maybe we are going to achieve a higher consciousness and the space brothers or our way to achieve that goal regardless of what it's really about the book is contactees a history of alien human interaction by nicholas redfern coming up next on the paracast i
3: have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox, but most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you it's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us if you like what you hear get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com radio.namecheap.com and be sure to play our contest by following us on twitter
0: thanks michelle and by the way listeners please use the coupon code radio day that's radio day one word for special discounts at Namecheap.
1: Jean and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at That's news at And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too.
0: Hey neighbors, as we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners.
2: This is Spot Hopkins, and you're listening to the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk.
0: Nicholas Redfern, what attracted you to the Contactee movement?
2: Well, I guess it's one of these subjects where, certainly in today's world of ufology, you know, it doesn't really get that much interest publicity or promotion and that alone I suppose isn't you know necessarily a reason to promote it you know there's there's a lot of good reasons uh, why a lot of uh, aspects of ufology aren't discussed you know they're just kind of crazy but I think with the contactee movement for me at least it's one of these areas that When you get past the, I guess the initial image that a lot of people have that it's just a bunch of cranks making up stories, you actually just, you do find there's sort of a wealth of data that's well worth looking at that's interesting and that parallels a lot of, I suppose, history, folklore and mythology throughout the centuries, but just in like a, a modern day incarnation. So what I tried to do was, or what I, what I thought at first at least was, well, you know, why not try and bring some of these older stories to not necessarily just a new generation of people in the UFO subject, but people who have been in the subject for many years, but have largely dismissed it. So it was a case more than anything else of just trying to present an old aspect of ufology to a new audience and and see what the response is and, and, you know, get some of these accounts out there and see if we can kind of really see what lies at the heart of the whole contact team history.
0: Well, of course, a lot of people assume that George Adamski was the first guy, although others came out said they had their experiences earlier than Adamski. Yeah. But is that still true? It was basically well, beginning with it, Adamski?
2: Well, certainly Adamski, you know, he's, he's the one guy more than any other who I guess we would consider the ultimate contactee. Um, there's no doubt about that. You know, he sort of defined that movement. But, I mean, if you look back into the UFO history, you find that there are, earlier cases for example i mentioned one in the book where the FBI received a letter in uh, the late 1940s from a guy who had an experience in the mountains in California where it's kind of an interesting story where he was hiking in the mountains and sort of he was in like an isolated location which is how many of the contactee stories began and saw this UFO like craft come down he felt that the quote, aliens inside the craft were expressing concern about atomic warfare. Now, of course, this was a staple part of many of the major contactees of the 50s, you know, claiming contact with aliens that said we should disarm our nukes and things like that. Now, this case was, as I said, late 40s and predated Adamski by a number of years. And I think there's probably a lot of these cases around. I've certainly uncovered five or six which are sort of classic contactee style encounters, but you know, in some cases actually predate Kenneth Arnold. And of course, in the 1930s, Adamski himself had a an organization called the Royal Order of Tibet, which was sort of very much, you know, based around an alternative lifestyle. So, you know, he was delving into different matters long before his alleged UFO encounters began.
0: Well, of course, there was a statement that Adamski made once that was actually quoted in the infamous special Adamski expose issue of Saucer News. That's Mm -hmm. when Jim Mosley actually had a semi or more than semi-serious publication. Mm -hmm. And Adamski was quoted as saying to somebody, sometimes you have to go through the back door to get the truth out. Mm -hmm. And in this case, of course, he took everything that He wanted to express whatever experiences he might have really had, if he had any, and put them into the mouths of the Space Brothers from Venus or elsewhere.
2: Yeah, actually, you make a good point there, because when you bring up Jim Mosley, I actually interviewed Jim for the contactees, but because he met Adamski many years ago, and Jim basically told me that, in in his words, that he felt that the so-called alien, the main alien that adamski claimed to have met, was a being named Orthon. And Jim told me that he felt that Adamski needed Orthon in the same way that religion needs God. He felt that Adamski actually probably did believe the philosophy that he was trying to get across but if somebody says you know i'm george adamski and i believe we should do a b and c no one's going to listen but if you say a space being named orthon told me to say it and do it people sit up and take notice and that's what jim felt but he he felt that adamski was trying to get across a way of life a philosophy etc that he personally believed but he needed something else bigger than him to do so. So, you know, this is why so, so many people consider Adamski's story to be controversial in the sense that maybe it does have factors of reality in it, but also it was embroidered upon as a means to promote the message.
0: Well, that's the point, too, here. Did Adamski actually have a real paranormal experience at one point in time?
2: Well, you know, some people suggest it was all made up. He didn't have any experiences. Others suggest maybe, for example, Colin Bennett, who wrote a book called Looking for Orthon, which is sort of a very detailed book all about Adamsey's experiences. I interviewed Colin also for the book, and he told me that there's no doubt that Adamsey kind of embroidered upon his earlier encounters and got him into all sorts of trouble and, you know, tying himself up in knots, by telling somebody one story which contradicts with something else, he said. And it's also worth noting that actually several years before Adamski's claimed <laughs> alien encounters kicked off, he actually wrote a science fiction novel called Pioneers from Space. Pioneers from Space, conveniently, coincidentally, however you want to look at it, actually almost eerily parallels his own claimed encounters of several years later. Again, you know, people say, well, maybe that had earlier encounters and... And that's why the later ones were similar to the ones in the novel that, you know, they, they're actually talking about real earlier encounters. But, you know, the skeptic would be quite justified in thinking that Adamski wrote a sci-fi novel. And then when the whole UFO arena kicked off, thought, hey, you know, this might be an idea to try and promote this as factual instead. So, in other words, he has as many detractors as supporters, and and that's not surprising. You know, this is the thing I've tried to stress in the book is that it's not clear-cut, and some of these people were highly controversial.
1: But here's the thing, Nick. Uh, when you've got people like Adamski putting forward these tales of interacting with beings, the space brother beings, and using that as a mechanism to sell a uh, their own personal philosophy about, let's say, conservationism, In the environment in which Adamski was doing this, you've got the 1950s where the the mass media's depiction of UFOs in terms of, like, movies, Mm -hmm. you've got, like, Invaders from Mars. You have Mm -hmm. movies that almost universally depict extraterrestrials as malevolent creatures to be fought. So Mm. did he really think that he would gain a – I mean – what was the approach into, to coming up with the Space Brother notion, given that yeah. sort of the, the mass market idea was that these things were actually malevolent? How does that play?
2: Well, that's a good point. I mean, you, you're quite right in the sense that, you know, you look at the whole early years of ufology, you had a lot of military reports of, of flying sources, which suggests maybe these things, although not necessarily directly hostile, were potentially testing our defenses. Um, You quite rightly point out, you know, invaders from Mars, invasion of the body snatchers, things like this, sort of hostile, malevolent aliens. And this sort of totally flew in the face of what Adamski was talking about, almost like peace-loving hippie-type aliens spreading messages of peace and love. And really, the only thing that was missing was the pot and the LSD. That came later. That came later, yeah. (laughs) um, Please don't get me started. (laughs) started. (laughs) So in that respect, you know, he really was out on a limb now on the one hand you could argue that you know he really sort of was spreading this message of like love and light almost with his royal order of tibet in the 30s so he wasn't really someone who was sort of primed to take that you know sort of laser guns and planets exploding approach i think because of his earlier background so i think that probably had a lot to do with it and also i think there's there's something to be said for the fact that he almost, or quite literally developed like a cult-like following. And even Jim Mosley told me when he interviewed him in the early 50s personally, or met with him, you know, he was very much like, perceived as like a guru type character. And I think, you know, gurus, cults, etc. they always achieve followings when it's like peace and harmony based and something positive, like a positive message for, for the followers you know, it, it's entirely possible and probable, I think, that, you know, where we just set up a, a group and, you know, try and enlist followers and disciples uh, along the lines of, flesh-eating aliens are gonna destroy the planet. <laughs> you might not get many followers. <laughs> um, Taken of Dansky's approach worked. You know, I mean, for example, his first book, co-written with a, an Irishman, Desmond Leslie, in its first edition sold 125,000 copies. Now that's unheard of today in UFO books. You know, never mind at the turn of the 1950s when the subject was barely out of a short trousers, so to speak, um, you know, to, to be selling books in six figures shows the sway and the pull of his books. So, you know, that message, even though it may not have sort of paralleled the Hollywood angle of hostile aliens, and it may not even have followed the, you know, the government angle of, of military encounters with UFOs. It certainly held sway with the public and, you know, people who got behind him as well.
0: You know, one thing mentioned not very often is the fact that Desmond Leslie, who wrote the first part of the book Mm -hmm. Flying Saucers Have Landed, that was talking about ancient astronauts long, long, long before we Mm -hmm. had Eric Von Daniken.
2: Oh yeah, I mean Desmond Leslie was a very interesting character. He, he came from a very rich sort of aristocratic Irish family. His family uh, were deeply steeped in the occult, the occult research, and one of his relatives was actually a disciple of Alistair Crowley. So, you know, some people talk about the ties in between, you know, UFOs and the occult. You know, some people take like a demonic approach to it, and here you find one of the earliest for- professional best-selling authors on the subject. Not just Leslie, but Adamski you know Adamski was sort of in partnership with a man related to a man who was a disciple of Crowley so you know you have a lot of strange and intriguing ties like this with the early years of of the contactee field but you're quite right that you know the People like Leslie did recognize the whole ancient astronauts phenomenon before that particular term was actually coined.
0: Let's get back, of course, to George Adamski. He, of course, was just one person who got involved in this. So in the end, was there any veracity to anything he was coming out with? I mean,
1: I know that having looked at some of the photographic evidence he presented, it wasn't in any way convincing at all. You know, it's just—it's not. It doesn't—it doesn't fly, so to speak.
2: Um, <laughs> Quite literally, it doesn't fly. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I mean, yeah. at that point, uh, you know, what's the historical interest? Is it that potentially there was this covert connection with the Damski, and that's that's you know a, a very deep topic, Nick. Mm. You get into uh, in some depth in the book, which was the fact that while this was going on, there seemed to be some faction within our government that was interested in exploiting these people
2: yeah you know I mean when you talk about what is it to support his story and the photographs etc mm-hmm. like most of the contactees you know, the stories were taken and accepted at, on large scales uh, at face value. You know, Adamski's photographs, um, you know, don't, in my mind, show flying saucers. They show flying lampshades and things like that. And, you know, who knows what? But I know one this is before go Photoshop.
0: Photoshop. We didn't have the yeah. ability to do these things. Yeah, exactly. You've got
2: to just throw things in the sky and hope you get it on. You get a picture before it hits the ground. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that Adamski's pictures are not real and are not indicative of anything to do with his claimed encounters of meeting with aliens. You know, they're not indicative or relative to those cases. Now, as far as the incidents and claims of meeting aliens are concerned, Several of these allegedly occurred with other people present, one being a famous one when he supposedly met this being called Orthon out in the California desert. One of those present was a man named George Hunt Williamson, who was also a contactee and also, unfortunately, highly controversial. So, you know... Well, like he like, had a fake
0: doctorate, I think, was one of the yeah, things. That's right. can go yes. from there. Well,
2: as some of the contactees did. And so, of course, you know, yes, Adamski claimed to have had witnesses, but then... Unfortunately, the witnesses were people like George Hunt Williamson. So, you know, that, that's highly problematic. What I would say is that it, that certainly didn't stop people from embracing his story, as it often does when you have someone who's like a charismatic speaker holding court and, you know, relating these stories about how he's been asked to spread the word of the Space Brothers. But you mentioned or touched upon this issue of government involvement. Mm-hmm. This is sort of one of the areas that to me is one of the most fascinating aspects. There's absolutely no doubt that the FBI, for example, was closely watching the contactees because they were concerned by the quite, sometimes quite open and clear um, references to communism and the supposed communist-style governments that the aliens had. Now, of course, if you're selling 125,000 books, and you're telling all your readers, hey, communism's good because it's the sort of government the aliens have, and you're doing this in the early 50s at the height of the Cold War, you are going to attract the attention of people like J. Edgar Hoover. That's not out of the ordinary. I guess the stranger aspect of government involvement is one which suggests that maybe the contactees were either witting or unwitting players in kind of like projects to either make the whole UFO subject look ridiculous by spreading stories about meeting long haired space aliens from Venus or possibly that the government may have been actually using people in some of the, like the early MK Ultra and this goes back to actually LSD as I mentioned in the book.
0: Hey neighbors, the old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.goToMeeting.com. Go to meeting.com slash podcasts. That's go to meeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered
2: another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
0: We have Nicholas Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. And we're discussing the early Contactee movement, certainly George Adamski being one of the progenitors or one of the early participants, at least one of the people who got the most publicity, if nothing else. And then there was Howard Menger, a New Jersey sign painter, someone who, by the way, had been in the military in World War II. Tell us about Howard Menger.
2: Well, Menger, again, was, I guess, like a real character character. Within the whole UFO subject and, you know, you find, just, you know, just before I get on to Menger, you find that these people were the ones that really sort of lent themselves to the contactee field and who became popular the ones who were sort of good speakers charismatic and had great stories to tell that was certainly the case with Menger and he he claimed you know a number of um, meetings with the so called space people claimed that in 1956 he was actually uh, invited aboard a flying saucer where he was literally taken into space and saw structures on the moon and things like this so you know it was a very highly controversial story in some respects almost like whimsical and you know in today's world at least um and again his photographs weren't the most convincing uh, although you know a lot of people do support them
0: we mentioned of course their photos mm-hmm. and the funny well, thing yeah, about yeah. the photos is the fact that they look like paintings to me that's the do first actually, thing. you're right. Mm-hmm. and one of the paintings looks like the closing scene or one of the closing scenes in the movie the day the earth stood still Mm-hmm. The Robert Weiss movie, who, by the way, also was a UFO believer, according to Tim mm-hmm. Beckley. That movie, the scene where the spaceship's preparing to take off at the end of the picture. Mm-hmm. If you look at that scene where the ship is airborne, of course, the special effects weren't all that terrific.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you look at Howard Mentor's photographs, you say, wait a minute, he was inspired. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that, that would be inspiration if it's almost, you know, literally <laughs> identical. Uh, Menger later married a woman named Connie Weber, and the the story was that she was supposedly the reincarnation of a, a Venusian space woman. And he soon left his, his first wife for her and then went on the lecture circuit and wrote a book in 1959 called From Outer Space to You. And Connie, his wife, she wrote one called My Saturnian Lover, which was supposed about uh, her previous interplanetary relationship with Menger in an earlier life, in an earlier incarnation. But what's interesting about Menger's story is that in 1960, he actually recanted the whole thing. Oh,
0: yes. And this is where it gets really interesting.
2: Yeah, it gets sort of weirdly interesting in the sense that he, he recanted the story, but then quietly told a number of researchers the, the case, his entire story if you like, was essentially a test of public reaction to see how the public would react to the notion that aliens were visiting us and when Menger was asked well you know, who's asked you to do this, who's sponsoring it, his response was that it was basically the Pentagon who wanted to see what the public's response would be to the idea of face-to-face alien contact and he agreed to participate in this particular program. Now whether or not that's true, the the fact is that Menger was previously in the U.S. Army. You know, he fought during the Second World War, as, of course, as millions of Americans did. So that's not necessarily indicative of anything. But it, it is significant in the sense that Menger was talking about being used by, I guess, the intelligence community to test the public response to you know, UFO stories long before it sort of became fashionable to talk about things like disinformation and, you know, leaking UFO stories. So in that respect, I think Menger's story is worth keeping an eye on, but not necessarily for having occurred literally, but for what may have been gone on, might may have gone on behind the scenes, you know, with string pulling and things like that.
0: Very strange thing. Now, Mm. one time Jim Mosley and I had lunch with Menger, This was in the mid-1960s. This was after he recanted the story, and he was telling us about possibly being involved in some sort of government experiment. But then that raises the whole picture. What about the other contactees if Menger was telling the truth? Does that mean also that other contactees may have been the victim of some kind of government test, experiment, whatever?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would actually don't rule that out at all. Now, I think there is something to be said for the notion that when somebody sort of sows the seeds of an idea, you know, the imagery of the space people, others pick up on it. So in some respects, I think some of the contactees there was no need for the government to sort of play mind control operations with them because people just bought into the story and then claimed their own experiences. But there are clear indications in my mind that some of the contactees at least, may well have been the victims of government chicanery, if you like. Uh, One being Orfeo Angelucci, who was sort of a big name on the lecture circuit in the 50s. He spoke at a lot of contactee conferences, particularly at George Van Tassel's uh, famous events at Giant Rock in California every year. And Angelucci's story is very similar to, you know, the, the staple parts of of contactee law he claimed face-to-face contact with human-like aliens trips into space aboard flying saucers And discussions with human-like alien entities about nuclear war, the future of the planets, you know, how we need to live, that sort of thing. But what's interesting is that in one of Angelucci's final encounters, which uh, actually didn't occur with aliens, but occurred in a, of all places, a diner, as a lot of these contactee stories weirdly seem to do. He claimed to- A diner? uh, A diner, yeah. Basically, what it was, that Angelucci claimed that he he got into contact with a doctor named Adam, who was basically dying of a a terminal illness, but who'd met similar aliens to Angelucci's. And so the two decided to meet in this particular diner in California. The, The doctor said, well, I can only tell you, you know, my side of the story as to what happened with me and the aliens if you drink this particular drink. And so they were sitting at the table. And what it was, it was just a normal drink, but the doctor popped a couple of pills into it. So Angelucci reports in his book how he, you know, he drank this particular drink, just soda or something, but with these little pills in. And shortly afterwards, something very strange began to happen he felt the room sort of transformed you know that the lights took on meaning for him you know colors and shades began to change and he felt you know that his mind was being expanded in all sorts of areas which of course sounds like a classic lsd trip what he also talks about in the book is that in the restaurant that sat on the table just adjacent to them were two u.s army guys in uniforms who were Basically keeping a very intense and close eye on Angelucci. Now, you have to bear in mind that this was actually only shortly afterwards the famous or rather infamous story of Frank Olson, who was a CIA guy who actually jumped out or was pushed, depending on your viewpoint, out of a window uh, after taking an LSD trip after his You know, he'd been spiked with LSD by the CIA. And, of course, you know, he fell to his death, and it's a very controversial story. And then you find Angelucci pretty much going on what does sound like an LSD trip. And by by his own open admission, after, you know, swallowing these pills while two army guys look on concerned and intently as if you know they're there to almost take control of the situation if things go wrong but Angelucci said that as the pill started to take effect he could see this like a small ballerina dancing in the drink, and as I said, you know, colors in the room, in the in the uh, diner, seemed to take on different effects, and you know, his mind was expanded here, there, and everywhere, and then Adam, this guy, started to relate the story of his encounters, and began to ask Angelucci, well, you know, what happened with your experiences? Almost, it was like a, a, drugged, a drugged interrogation, if you like, is the best way of describing it, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if, this was an attempt to either confuse the nature of angelucci's experiences or put him into a drug fueled state to where he could be questioned because perhaps the cia or whoever were genuinely interested to know if his encounters were real or not
0: or maybe Uh, that was the whole cause of the experiences david well
2: quick, quick,
1: quick question about that nick In Angelucci's telling of this, does he give any kind of a reference uh, as to the time frame between when the pills are dropped in the liquid, he drinks the liquid, and he Mm -hmm. starts seeing things? And the reason I'm asking that is that if you think about hallucinogens, Mm -hmm. things like LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, they take at least an hour to start kicking in. You think about the rapid-acting hallucinogens, like DMT. I don't, I don't think you can actually get DMT in a liquid form. I might be wrong about that, but I think I don't know that you can. So so if we're talking a hallucinogen, what p- potential hallucinogen do you think we're even talking about?
2: Well, this is the problem. I mean, you know, you're quite right, actually. A very good book I've just reviewed that's um, sort of as an aside is Andy Roberts' new book called Albion Dreaming, which is all about the history of LSD in Britain. That's a very good look at the subject. But, yeah, you're quite right about, you know, the nature and the speed. Of LSD and and when it begins to take effect the problem is that Angelucci's book which relates this was actually written and published some five or six years after this particular experience occurred mm. and so you know he, he, he wrote in a simplistic kind of style anyway and so We're not entirely sure how long they were sitting in the restaurant speaking before the pills took effect, depending on what they were. We do know, for example, that they sat and chatted for a long time and ate dinner in the diner as well, and then chatted afterwards and pretty much stayed until closing time. We're talking over the course of several hours, but you're quite right, we don't know, and of course this would have an effect on what the drug was, how quickly it actually took effect.
0: Well, the thing I wonder, of course, about, uh, in this case, Orfeo Angelucci is. Someone says to you, "Would you take this drug?" Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the red pill or the blue pill, now.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's the weird thing is that you know that he that he would go ahead and take it. <laughs> you know, you know if somebody wants to take take drug, that, that's up to them. But you know, to actually just be given something by a stranger in a restaurant and say, "Take this." and just to do it. I do know that he'd been in touch with this guy, Adam, supposedly by letter and phone beforehand. So whether that would have anything to do with it, I don't know. But the whole thing kind of smacks of almost magical, ethereal meeting where, you know, minds were quite literally bent out of shape rather than just, you know, sitting in a restaurant with someone talking about seeing a UFO. It's it's very, very odd, almost like a trip. You know, you go back 500 years into sort of the, the fairy kingdom, you know, with the, the fairy queen or whatever, that sort of thing. It has that sort of magical, otherworldly aspect to it as well.
1: We see that uh, with anybody who ingests hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. You know, and different hallucinogens have different types of even visual yep. effects, psilocybin versus mescaline versus LSD. But, you know, I was reading that one part of your book where you talk about uh, Terence McKenna Who's uh, out there in the field and who sees a, uh, a damsky like craft fly overhead. And he knows in his mind that it's fake, but yet he's seeing it. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, for anybody who's ever experimented with hallucinogens, they know that one of the things that tends to happen is that you end up having this sort of uncontrollable situation where you have all sorts of imagery being pulled out of your subconscious mind mm-hmm. and thrown into your visual field. Mm-hmm. That's a well-known byproduct of a really good acid trip. And so to, to I think the problem that that I personally have when you know, we bring up the issues of, uh, of hallucinogenic drugs and the veracity of things that are seen and experienced is that we're talking about a massive reconfiguration of human perception at that point. Mm-hmm. Massive reconfiguration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite right. Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, even um, I think it's what, Go Rightly, or uh, uh, you talk about he had this um, LSD experience with a friend and they're seeing the same thing. Yeah. And, and the thing is, uh, and it's been many years, but having, having uh, some experience with these compounds, I can tell you that you have a group of people and someone says, oh, my God, look at that. Mm. Everybody's tripping. Someone says, look at that. Yeah. Look at that light over there. Everybody looks over, and everybody's going to see the light. That's just the way that hallucinogens often work.
2: Yeah, and I think the important thing a lot of people forget about hallucinogens is the fact that the setting and the mood are as significant as the product itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it isn't just a case of, oh, I'll take LSD and I'll see this. You know, If you take it in sort of a hostile environment, or, you know, the setting isn't sort of conducive to the trip, then you may well get something that's, you know, kind of scary for some people. Right. Um, you know, if you've got the right mindset and the mood, then that's more conducive to the idea of, you know, the, the conventional idea of, of your mind being expanded in a positive fashion. So.
0: Suggestibility. Mm-hmm. Before we get too suggestible... Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
3: You've entered another dimension. You've
1: entered
2: the Paracast.
0: Nicholas Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. A fast question occurs to me, Nicholas, and that is other contactees who have had mind-altering experiences such as Angelucci, things that indicate potential involvement by people just trying to fiddle with their perceptions. Anything yeah. else? Other clues?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, one of the little thing, uh, little known things about Angelucci is that he also wrote in one of his books that when he was on a tour of the east coast of the U.S., uh, basically speaking about his experiences and uh, that were mentioned in his first book, he claimed to have been approached by what he described as a mysterious group of people who asked him if he would be willing to slant his lectures around a communist line to, again, promote the idea that the aliens weren't just peace-loving and, you know, wanting to live in peace and harmony, etc., but that they had like a socialist-style government, and he refused to do that. And it was actually not long after that that he had this sort of weird mind-bending experience. So again, you know, it may be that there were people on the inside somewhere who thought, well, hang on, it's not just Sadansky saying this. Here's this other guy actually openly admitting that he, you know, he had mysterious visitors who tried to convince him to talk on the party line, if you like. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I think possibly this, I guess, drug-fueled interview went ahead to see, you know, try and find out who it was that was infiltrating the team movement, why they were doing it, and, you know, were they the Russians? Was it a communists in the U.S.? Who knows? You know, and I think we can look at it from varying degrees of significance. I mean, certainly anyone who was, you know, in Hollywood or whatever speaking about communism was watched, so it could have significance. It might just have been one of many, many, you know, projects that were undertaken, watching all manner of people.
0: Okay, we're looking at this case. We have Angelucci, we have Howard Menger saying it was the government. Now, one of the things I've said a number of times in this show, and at the risk of repeating myself, okay, I'll repeat myself, I suggested that, and this maybe takes us beyond the scope of your book, but maybe something we could just mention as a segue abductions indicating possible involvement of government authorities such as of course the marty and betty hill case Mm -hmm. yeah this couple they live near a military base they have friends in the military Mm -hmm. Hmm. what do you think
2: well yeah i mean i think when we look at whether it's contactee cases or abductions i think we always have to sort of look at each case on its own merits or otherwise now if people ask me do i think you know every abduction case is the work of the military. No, I don't. I think that's nonsense because I think the chances of them not screwing up and being found out on such a large scale isn't feasible. On the other hand, I think there's something to be said for the when the imagery and the motif of something like alien abductions gets into the public psyche, some experiences are purely internal to the person. So... A lot we can explain that way. However, there are a number of cases on record, several of which I've investigated, where it seems to be quite clear that there's a a military connection or angle to the abductions. And I'm not talking about, you know, military surveillance of abductees, but actual sort of manipulation of the person, and again, I think from some of the cases I've looked at, I think what's happened is that there have been, I guess in simple terms, mind control experimentation sponsored, and it's been done under like a UFO banner, really to see the extent to which or otherwise the human mind can be manipulated. I don't think always it's as actually anything to do with the UFO subject. In terms of being related to it, it's just that the UFO subject is being used because it's such a, an extreme scenario. So if you can make people believe they've seen aliens, you can make them believe they've seen anything. I think that has been done. I think there are a number of cases that are indicative of that, um, but I don't think it's you know the, the whole phenomenon.
1: A well, Question for you, Nick: When you've got Adamski uh, reporting a certain set of parameters regarding his experiences, and then you have these. Supposed contactees are coming around after him and they're they're basically reporting much of the same stuff You know a lot of similarity with the the style of the beings. Is this just a case of uh, a cultural meme taking hold and spreading? Mm -hmm. Sort of like the whole thing that happened with the um, creature depicted on the cover of communion And how that sort of then spawns off a whole movement of people who all of a sudden are reporting the same thing And, and again Always with the knowledge that, certainly in the case of abductions, based on what we've looked at, there seems to be something going on, certainly, uh, with some percentage of the people who report these things. But for a lot of other people who report this stuff, there does seem to be the sense that they're sort of ingesting mythology mm-hmm spinning it around their heads and then putting out their own version of it. Um,
2: yeah, I think that definitely happens. There's there's no doubt that, you know, when you put a, a I guess like a very, very uh, strong, memorable image, you now whether it's, you know, like the, the cover of Communion or it's an event or an incident or an encounter, it does kind of, you know, spread like wildfire. You know, I don't want to attribute that as to mean that the person who's doing it is deliberately trying to spread that imagery or, or story but it, it inevitably happens you know it's it's kind of like somebody says something and then it spreads and spreads you know like alligators in the sewer story that sort of thing you know everybody's heard the stories somebody's uncle knew someone who etc cetera, etc cetera. And, you know, that happens throughout life. That, that's the sure. and, and, you know, the human nature. Now, when it comes to the contactees in general, I suppose, I think what happened is that people like Adamski were relating these accounts. I think some of the people who picked up on these stories and began relating their own accounts were actually genuine believers in their own stories. For example, Orfeo Angelucci, Truman Bethlehem, There doesn't seem to be much doubt that they fully believed what they were saying. You know, it's a good, I guess, exercise in human nature, if you like, to examine how and why people come to hold such firm beliefs. Now, whether they were telling the truth is a different matter. but. Those two, in particular, from everybody I've spoken to, their stories, they seem to be relating them earnestly and honestly from their own perspectives. Others, I think, just jumped on the bandwagon and were pure hoaxes. You know, they're either looking for money, fame, both women, whatever. You know, this is what I mean. I don't think we can sort of, paint the whole contact team movement with one brush. Well, not, um, no, no, no. The lines. Certainly not the whole thing. Separately.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we're not, we're not trying to do that. It's no. just, you know, trying to get a handle on what's the signal to the noise ratio. I mean, that's kind well, of like what you're always involved with here. And, and, and in the case of what we're talking about, like you point out in the book, you've got all these other elements coming into play. You've got mind-altering drugs coming into play. You've got you know, CIA operatives coming in to take advantage, or uh, you know, government operatives coming in to basically exploit someone who's saying something. And then, aside from all of this, is the question of the psychological profiles of the people we're talking about. In the case of Adamski, uh, in the book, you identify that he was already looking at alternate lifestyle stuff yeah. before he started. You know, Talking about uh, these, these supposed encounters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, has anybody attempted to do a psychological profiling of these contactees to find out if indeed there were common elements that may have caused delusional behavior in them?
2: Well, you know, I don't know if anyone's actually done that, but what I can tell you is that there seem to be, for me at least, clear indications that many of the contactees prior to their claimed experiences were dissatisfied with their lives. And then afterwards, hmm. they were sort of almost like spiritually, spiritually elevated after the experiences. And, you know, it was almost like coming through a stressful time. And then seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, which you know psychologically or subconsciously, you know it may be that the experiences were needed, you know, to get them out of the sort of depths they were in. For example, Orfeo Angelucci, uh, as a child, was a very sickly. Child nearly died on several occasions. Had. Ill health all through his, you know, early adulthood was a very, in his own words, he described himself in his books as very sort of like a nervous character. Um, there are indications from some of the things that he wrote about that he suffered from hyperventilation, which is a, a stress-related condition where you know the, the person breathes too fast and starts to feel ill, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and you've got to breathe into a paper bag. So you know, he mm-hmm. was a nervous character. He had these experiences. And then, you know, his life was profoundly transformed. Truman Bethlehem, another contactee who claimed to have met a gorgeous um, female space captain named Aura Rains in Nevada in the early 50s. I don't think it's coincidental that at the time when he allegedly met this hot alien woman from a planet called Clarion that he was actually on his second marriage and that one was in trouble and ended up marrying three times. It was almost this hot space babe appeared at a time when he was trying to get away from his quote real life wives. You know and joking aside there is like a, a psychological aspect to all this, which is quite clear, the idea that things were going wrong in their lives and suddenly these higher entities come into play, throw something in the mix, and then the people involved are radically, radically changed for the better from their own perspectives at least. So They're you, know, you do have to ask if that's an internal subconscious trigger rather than something that's external. Well,
1: it sounds like a religious epiphany. By where they're painting themselves as the messianic figure.
2: Yeah, that's actually a good, a very good analogy. And in fact, it's not an analogy. It's you know, you write on the mark there that that is one of the things that kind of differs the contactee cases from today's abductions. You know, you look at abductions, it's very much cold clinical. And you could argue that the people involved in these, in reporting these events are victims. That's actually completely different to what the contactees reported, where they were almost like, quote, the chosen ones. You know, they almost literally walking, you know, along the road when the flash of light occurs and and suddenly everything's made clear to them. There are deep religious parallels between the experiences of the contactees and, you know, things like saint conversions, that type of thing. You know, can we look at it in purely an alien contact context? I don't think so. I think there's something else going on. The big question is, you know, are these profound changes internal or is there something external provoking them?
0: Well, maybe we should separate this, and this may be a topic of part two, Mm -hmm. and that is we have people who may have had a real experience, and they couch it in terms that were, as they say, acceptable at the time, and certainly Mm -hmm. people from Venus, handsome people from Venus and Saturn, handsome aliens, or people wearing silvery suits like Michael Rennie in the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. That was okay in the early 50s, mid-50s, late 50s. Maybe since Close Encounters, abductions are more like that because of the fact that they had gray aliens in the movie Close Encounters mm-hmm. of the Third Kind. But beginning and end, we look at two things here. Is there government involvement in these claims, mm-hmm. or are they real? And then maybe we start getting into the meta question here, which is how do these cases relate to cases involving meetings of higher beings before, there was a UFO yeah. universe, UFO-oriented mm-hmm. culture or cult. Now, the book is called Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. Before we go to part two, you have two minutes. that <laughs> You can plug the book and tell us more about what we're going to expect to see.
2: Okay, well, uh, my new book is called Contactees, History of Alien-Human Interaction. It's published by New Page Books. It's basically a study of the whole contactee movement, from pretty much the late 1940s and right up to the present day and looks at some of the more well-known contactees like George Adamski, George Van Tassel, but also a lot of lesser-known contactees and some people have become known as silent contactees, those who pretty much have kept their stories to themselves. And it also addresses the various theories. Were the encounters literally true? Were they the work of hoaxes? Could there be some sort of government manipulation? Or could it be the manipulation was done by some sort of alien intelligence that I guess, manifests in different ways according to the period of time and the belief systems of the people of that time. You know, in one era it's gods, in another one it's goblins and fairies, then it's long-haired space brothers, and today it's the grey aliens. So I try and cover a lot of ground and treat each case on its own merits. And really try not to be biased either way. I think you know the contact team movement is so controversial; it polarizes people into the camps of definitive believers and definitive skeptics. I like to hope I'm somewhere between the two, and you know, just looking at all the evidence and see where it leads.
0: One fast question before we split for the hour: Were you able to expose any outright hoaxes during your research?
2: Oh yes, there's no doubt that you know some of the contactee cases were blatant hoaxes, there's there's absolutely no doubt about that at all. One of the, actually lesser well-known ones, but a classic example is a man named Harold Burney. Um, Harold Burney was the subject of an FBI file, possibly one of the strangest FBI files I've ever read that has been declassified through the Freedom of Information Act. He was actually a guy briefly on the scene in the 1950s and was essentially like a committed con man. know he would go anywhere and con people for money. And when the whole saucer scene, particularly the contactee Scene took off in the fifties. He he latched onto that and got his claws into a, a woman. A, unfortunately, a woman who was, I guess, unfortunately perhaps suffering from a little bit of self, low self-esteem, and he sort of charmed her. She became his secretary. The story was that he basically conned her out of a lot of money because he said he needed to fund this organisation he was setting up because he was in touch with aliens from Venus, etc., and claimed to have made various flights into space. Very much. Like the, you know, the definitive contactees of that era. And of course, like all con men, he needed more and more money. And his victim, unfortunately, you know, was sort of entranced and hypnotized by him and was happy to keep supplying him money until. He pretty much drained her and bled her dry. And then, of course, inevitably vanished with the money.
0: Uh Um, I'll tell you what. We'll talk about the vanishment with the money, (laughs) about (laughs) this blatant hoaxer, and more of the impact of the contactee movement on part two of the Paracast. We have Nicholas Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. More on the other side of the Paracast.
1: So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs?
0: I saw one once. I think they're out there. What what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people
1: haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Viettings.
0: We have Nicholas Redfern, author of Contact E's, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. Fascinating book covering the contactee movement. With A lot of the focus on the events that happened in the 1950s. You were mentioning this one, gentleman, Nick, before we broke for the hour, mm-hmm. where someone basically ran away with the goods. Was he ever captured?
2: Yeah, he was. This guy, Harold Burney, a sort of classic con man who um, conned a, a woman out of a load of money for various... Claimed space-based ventures, etc., and the FBI finally caught up with him, and he received a sort of pretty significant prison sentence as a result. But um, the FBI's file is quite revealing and telling, you know, as to how easy it was for people to really sort of spin the whole contactee movement to their advantage and unfortunately take advantage of other people. Um, now, I don't say that happened on every occasion. I don't think it did. But this case is, a you know, a classic example of how that did happen and how the case was exposed by the authorities. And, of course, you know, it, it does beg the question how many sort of went under the radar and weren't caught, and we'll never know now because, you know, they're long gone dead and buried. So.
1: One thing we should probably bring up, uh, you talk about these contactees who claim to have been in, Touch with races that were originating from planets like uh, Venus and Mars. I think you even have one that supposedly was uh, from Saturn, Mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, In the 50s, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but in that time period, there really wasn't a tremendous amount of knowledge about what was going on on the surface of those planets. Mm -hmm. uh, Where, you know, today we've sent probes to so many of the planets in our in our solar system, I believe, probably with the exception of Mercury, I think we've actually gotten got pictures of all of the planets uh, from from probes. I could be wrong about Mercury. I don't think we've got anything that close to the sun. But um, yeah. uh, the point is that I'm trying to bring up is that is it? Do you think it's 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 inaccurate to state that these guys were able to make stories up about Mars and Venus simply because we didn't know that much about? those planets at the time, where today nobody, I think, would attempt to make those claims. Wait, hold on, I think Richard Hoagland is calling. Oh no, sorry, that sorry, that was just just me having a hallucination there. But, but No difference, by the way. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, that obviously comes into play, right, Nick?
2: Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely correct there, that um, particularly in that period, sort of 50s, you know, we have to remember today, or it's easy to forget today, that... You know, there was no man's facelights. The Russians at that time hadn't even launched Sputnik. And the outer space was pretty much a mystery beyond the fact that we know or we knew there were planets out there, there were other stars, etc. And, you know, we could see the surface of the moon with telescopes. Beyond that, you know, we were pretty much in the dark. So you're quite correct that in terms of... Being able to, I guess, weave and spin stories about what might be on on the surface of Venus, nobody was really in a position to say, well, you know, this person is definitively wrong. It it could well have been the case. Um, And I think the contactees were fortunate enough to surface in that particular era before you know, the, the science proved them wrong. You, and again, you're correct in saying that surely no one today would, you know, suggest that there's, for example, an atmosphere and water and cities on the moon. You know, it's uh, it's one uh, of these things. Uh, 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 but actually, well, I don't anyway. <laughs> no, no, no.
1: There, there is someone, uh, uh, Schmecky Lear, John Schmecky Lear, has gone on record saying that there's a breathable atmosphere on the moon. Hmm.
0: Well,
2: you know, I mean. So we
0: can send them there, by the way. That would be...
2: Now, <laughs> I now just the as way, as, a way to find out. You go to the moon, take your space helmet off and see what happens. <laughs> I just,
1: and it's got to be mentioned. I, I have to mention this. This is the gratuitous moment of the Paracast where I believe somebody on the forums, Gene, had posted that there was a recent show with Lear and George Knapp and Lazar on Coast to Coast. And, and someone reported that Lear uh, was so drunk on the show that halfway through the show, apparently he passed out on air. Well, I you see, George story.
0: Knapp. I understand that would be very strange, <laughs> because George Knapp's a pretty good guy. I like yeah. George Knapp. He's been a friend of the show. Yeah, obviously, when the main host, Mister Snorri, well, I can understand maybe passing out as a result of that.
1: No, but but no. Apparently, Lear was 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 dead drunk and like in the middle of the uh, show, just like passes out. Which actually reminds me of a commentary on I think it was the Clerks DVD, where Jason Mewes walks in and he's drunk and stoned, and anyway kind of gets ugly when people get uh, under the influence of too many chemicals. I'm sorry. Please. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. No. Obviously, at this point, we know that Yeah, there's no gravity on the moon, regardless of what Lear says. Uh, we, we know this. And and this is it's important, I think, to, to, to bring this up, guys, because there is a sense that when we, we talk about this stuff, that everything's up for grabs. This whole thing about keep your mind open. And it's like, yeah, but we don't want our brains to fall out. Everything isn't up for grabs. Um, and, and there are plenty of mysteries. And certainly in, in this book, which you've uh, dedicated to Greg and to Mac Toney's, which I thought was really sweet of you, as obviously as
0: part of your uh, paranormal rat pack, uh, you guys all are, uh, <laughs> you're kind of
1: closely <laughs> sisters.
2: <accessible, laughs> and,
0: and of course, they all go to Las Vegas and they, well.
1: No, no, no I think it was Kimball might have started that. Oh, no, right. okay. I think it was Campbell. Yeah, I think it was but, was um, cool yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, where, where Mac actually uh, was really—I I personally think—thinking right along the right lines, and uh, you know, was building on the work of people like Kiel and Valet, mm. in bringing up the fact that so much of this, if you if you stop for a moment and you make the assumption that we might be talking about a phenomenon that is actually emanating from the planet. Yeah, and is some, maybe as Valet suggests, some sort of a control system, mm. uh, then you start to understand something about a potential explanation regarding the constant message of uh, you know, safeguard the planet, uh, stay away from atomic weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, if you had a, as Mac would put it, a crypto-terrestrial civilization, uh, it would be in their vested interest to not have a huge amount of, of nuclear warfare going on on the surface of the planet. It might not be a good thing for the planet overall, uh, especially if they're coming to the surface and utilizing resources on the surface in the same way that we utilize resources on the surface. So you have a very interesting uh, thing there. And that's not. I don't think that that basically is that far of a reach. And I think that Mac probably, in his forthcoming book, will make a very good case for that potentially being a fact.
2: Yeah, I think the the whole thing with the Space Brothers, so the Contact Team movement, is that whether it was you know whether it, the experiences were real, whether it was there was government involvement, or whether there was hoaxing, the whole thing sort of reeks of manipulation on somebody's part. Now, you know, Mac, as he points out, his theory, as you said, is that perhaps these Space Brothers and the overall UFO mystery is is Earth-based like an ancient terrestrial race if that is the case, you know, spreading stories that are coming from Venus and Mars would be the ideal thing to do everybody's looking to the skies when the answer's below them or around them and, you know, it, it remains hidden for example, I also interviewed Tim Beckley for the book, and Tim told me that although he you know he felt some of the contactee cases were real, he felt that the claims as to where they were supposed to come from were were absolutely deceptive. He said you know that there was clear evidence of this, and you know I, I would agree with that particular stance, and um, I think Mac's book, when it comes out, will be important to, for the whole movement because not only is it i guess putting a difference Angle on the UFO mystery, but it also helps possibly to explain so many different facets of it all under one banner. You know, that's one of the things with the UFO subject. There seems to be so many different things going on that it's difficult to ascertain, you know, what the motivation is. But Mac's theory, whether right or not, if it is true, you know, it actually does explain so many of the quirky aspects of the subject. So I think in that respect, it'll be treated. Uh, well, when it's published, and I think also it's going to attract a lot of attention.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that that theory accounts for all credible UFO sightings. No. I think there are people who would like there to be a single unified field theory to explain all this stuff. It would appear to me personally, and I think certainly as people start to read more about this and educate themselves about the meta layers of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes, I think, fairly clear at a certain point that looking for, uh, as one person once said to me, is there a Reader's Digest version of the explanation of this? And the answer is no. You're talking about a, a very intense mystery that doesn't have a simplistic explanation. It just yeah, doesn't.
2: No, that's that's um, a good way of putting it. I think... My, my own view is that looking at things in a literal black and white sense, you know, just doesn't hold water. I, I'm personally convinced, you know, so UFOs are probably classified military technology. Some could be genuine extraterrestrial visitations. I'm, I'm more inclined to think some are evidence of an intelligence on the Earth, which may actually not even be purely physical. You know, I point out in the book how some people claim experiences, what almost like ethereal balls of light, ghost lights, as they've become known, that seem to interact with them. So I, I think there could be four or five answers to a phenomenon that so many people. You know, have considered whether consciously or not is a unified phenomenon when it almost certainly isn't.
0: Looking at different theories, um, Mm. we have so many we could, you know, go crazy Mm. with. Focusing on the contactee cases, since the 50s and 60s, when we heard the people who met up with the Venusians and the Saturnians Mm. and whatever, have there been more recent cases of that nature?
2: Yeah, there's actually a lot of them. Um, John Keel called them silent contactees. The idea, you know, people who having classic contactee-style encounters that would rival anything that George Adamski or George Van Tassel, et cetera, claimed, but who, for the most part, really didn't talk outside of, you know, family and friends. And that was pretty much it, unless, you know, they were sort of coached and finally said, okay, you know, I'll tell you what happened. Um, For example, um, in the book, I cite one particular story of a woman who was deeply interested in in crop circles in England, a woman I interviewed several times named Vanessa Martin. And she had a very weird experience both in in crop circles and at Stonehenge. Um, most of the the crop circles in England appear in the county of Wiltshire every year, which is also the county where Stonehenge is situated. And so, you know, the, the two are never sort of far apart. But she claimed encounters with this long-haired... Pretty much looking like a classic Space Brother type character, who sort of espoused at length on the philosophy and motivation behind crop circles. And again, she was given, I guess, like the the classic Space Brother lecture about you know the the state of humankind and why this is important to get this message out there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but as I also point out in the book, um, she was given a name by this being which turned out actually to be very close to a classic um... american native american indian trickster name and you but this was on the other side of the world in england so you know this is like a fascinating story as a set of a type that would easily rival anything uh, that was put out in the fifties or sixties by the contactees. And yet it was just, you know, a story matter of factly told me by an English housewife who really, other than just having an interesting crop circle, you know, really wasn't delving into the whole space brother angle at all. And, um, and you, there are actually countless stories like this. I mean, there was so much more I could have put in the book, but I was limited to something like sixty thousand words. But you know, there's other cases from the 80s and the 90s from all around the world of people who met, you know, long-haired space brothers driving home from work, and just sound absurd stories. But they're, they're no different to what we've heard 50 years ago.
1: Well, there's also the Dorothy Isaac story. uh... Oh, the Dorothy Isaac story oh, yeah, that we, huh? we featured on the Paracast uh, well, a couple of years ago now, Gene, where there's definitely something interesting going on, uh, I think. Uh, she hadn't talked about this because Heineck had suggested she keep quiet about it and just keep shooting her film. You know, Sadly, some of the people who have attached themselves to her, a researcher and a filmmaker, who basically are the worst thing that happened to her because basically they then... Uh, take this uh, situation this case and put a proprietary uh, lock on it and act as gatekeepers, at which point anybody who uh, wants to really look into the veracity of her evidence is basically stopped. Mm-hmm. So you know Isa, that's a perfect example of a, a silent uh, experiencer who was actually gathering some what looked to me to be potentially rather compelling physical evidence, Mm-hmm. and was just basically uh, stonewalled from really sharing that with anybody. So well, you wonder how many how many versions of that are going on.
2: Well, I would say the answer is a lot. And I, I think, unfortunately, one of the problems is that because so many of the, the contactee stories sound outrageous, and if Max Theory was correct, that would be a good way to do it because it, it cloaks even further their real point of origin. But because they sound so outrageous, it does detract and put off people from speaking out. You know, of course, today, I suppose in today's world, it sounds more credible to talk about alien abductions and DNA and eggs and sperm being extracted in a kind of like a, a lab setting, if you like, a laboratory setting, rather than flying around Saturn with hippies, you know. Flying? Um, wait
0: a minute, wait a minute. That sounds like fun. We have... Well, it does sound like
2: fun, but it, to, unfortunately, to, today, much of today's UFO field They feel that this detracts from the, quote, more serious aspects of the subject. But, you know, there's really not that much difference between somebody who says they were taken on board a UFO by little gray guys and shown images of the collapse of the polar ice caps or the rainforests and George Adamski being told about the perils of nuclear war. There's actually not much difference.
0: The message is the same. The medium changes.
3: Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox, but most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter.
0: Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, Please use the coupon code RADIO DAY, that's Radio DAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap.
1: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
0: We have Nicholas Redfern, author of Contact Ease, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. And we're focusing on the meaning of it all. Of course, we get back to the conveying of this image that our planet is in trouble. It needs to be repaired. And the aliens are here to tell us and warn us. Now, looking at the overall picture, we were talking earlier, of course, about the government involvement. Mm -hmm. And we covered some of it. Drugs or Fiore Angelucci receiving Drugs, Howard Menger Possibly being influenced by The military to do that Which he did, which was make the claim about UFOs Do we have any other evidence Of overall Military-government involvement?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you Can you can look at it from, from several other angles. I mean, you know, the idea, for example, that not only were the contactees being used, but they were witting players as well. You know, Angelucci's story kind of sounds like he was a victim, but there are rumours that some of the contactees may actually have been, I would say, in the employ of the government, but were actually willing to be used to get these ideas out there. Now, for example, if we look at George Van Tassel. Now, George Van Tassel probably has the distinction of being the one contactee who had the most extensive FBI file on record. The FBI declassified its file to me, which runs to just under 400 pages. And what he talks about in there is actually the fact that Van Tassel um, was friends and worked with Howard Hughes um, at Hughes Aircraft, which is where George Van Tassel used to work. And Hughes, of course, had deep links with the CIA over the years. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove anything, but in itself it's interesting. Now, the FBI files also reference the fact that when he was working at Hughes' aircraft, uh, George Van Tassel helped... Uh, one local FBI agent in the area named Walter Bott on a number of investigations. Now, the FBI's files don't clarify, interestingly enough, what these investigations were but to find someone who was one of the leading players in the contactee movement who was associated very closely with Howard Hughes and helped the FBI on many investigations of a security nature, you have to begin to wonder, you know, is this just coincidental, or or are we seeing a pattern emerging where people, knowingly or not, were, I guess, the tools of the government? So that's sort of the other angle, that some of them were perhaps deliberately and knowingly helping, you know, promote this imagery, but maybe not even really knowing why, you know, who knows to what extent they were even briefed.
1: Then you get into such muddy waters that, what's your own threshold, Nick, for, um, basically thinking that there's some compelling information to be mm-hmm. found in the case and for a case being absolute bunk. I mean where do you draw the line?
2: Well, you know, with the concept is it's actually really difficult to do that because, you know, you look at somebody's story like Truman Bethlehem of meeting this hot space alien, Captain Laura Rains, on this Mesa in Nevada, you know, it sounds like sort of classic fantasy pulp fiction, you know, with a slight porno tinge on it as well. Um, But then when you look at his story, it, it actually isn't that different to the sort of thing that has been reported throughout folklore and mythology for hundreds and hundreds of years. For example, his encounter took place on Mormon Mesa, and you know then you have, for example, Joseph Smith starting the uh, the Mormon the Mormon movement with his encounter with this angelic being called Moroni, uh, which occurred atop Mormon Hill. You know, is there that much difference? Not really. Um, we could even go back and look at biblical accounts, very similar to some of Beckerham's, you know, reported experiences. So, in other words, it, it's really difficult to put a stamp on and say fake, real, or maybe. And that's why I think it, it, we have to look at each case on its own merit. Some I absolutely dismiss, like, as I said, Harold Burnes. Uh, there's another one, Buck Nelson, who claimed to uh, he was selling uh, hair from an alien dog um, that he met on one of his contactee experiences. And it, it just so happened that the hair actually matched identically the hair on his own dog. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so um, that that's a great story. But do I think there's any truth to it? No. Others, as I said, Andrew Luccis That was a weird one. I don't know. I, But I do think that we cannot dismiss the contactee movement as just the domain of hoaxes, as unfortunately so many people in ufology seem to want to do. I think they feel talking about contactees, and particularly the 50s contactees, discredits the so-called serious shirt-and-tie stuffiness that they want to sort of portray in the subject.
0: Well, but
1: you keep coming back to the issue of trying to separate signal from noise, and you know, Gene, when you ask the question about current or more recent contact, claim contactees, then you start to think about the whole Raelian thing, which is a sex cult. And basically, that's what I, from what I've read about it, it seems pretty clear to me that that's what it boils down to. And not that such a thing is a bad idea, but but it, it sounds quite fun, actually, a lot more fun than a typical UFO convention. Uh, but that doesn't make it paranormal anyway. I mean. You know, and that's what I was asking before, uh, uh, Nick. Because you know, in drawing this line between what do you find compelling and what's bunk, Mm -hmm. certainly all of the all of this stuff can teach us something about human psychology and human motivation. But and that's all good and fine. But that doesn't necessarily have any overlap with the paranormal.
2: No, um, I, I actually would say that as far as understanding you know, that the human psyche and how the mind works, we can actually learn a lot from the contactee movement. Um, And again, not necessarily on a ufological level, but purely by studying the way, for example, a lot of these people had low self-esteem and then were utterly almost overnight transformed. And, you know, you don't really find that by examining other aspects of the subjects or the people in it. So that's, you know, that sort of fascinates me. Um, You know, you bring up the issue of groups like, you know, the the radios, etc. Again, you know, groups like this, because they're somewhat controversial, have, have their followers, their detractors. But also, you know, it's a fascinating study. In, in human psychology and and the human mind as to how people get attracted to these organizations why and you know and what goes on and i think we can learn a lot about ourselves never mind just the, the ufo subject by oh, contactees.
1: sure and and in many ways it, it and, and certainly one can make this argument for so many of the people that are involved with obsessing over the ufo topic specifically today mm-hmm is that for a lot of people, this is a proxy religion. Uh, okay. they, they, they they don't want to belong to a, a church. They don't want to go to synagogue. Uh, Musks are kind of like old school. So this is uh, this is like religion gussied up for the 20th and 21st century with a technological veneer to it, with an unknown component, a large amount of
0: belief and faith, and the promise of something better coming. You know, uh, baking, speaking about that, David, one thing that occurs to me, we mentioned briefly George Van Tassel. He had this organization called Understanding, which sounds like a typical cult organization. They took donations for this device called the Integratron. Mm. It was supposed to be some kind of life-lengthening process or something. You go in there and you live longer. I don't know if it was ever completed or not, but can we assume this was just a fraud?
2: Well, you know, I mean, if it's a fraud... I guess we have to ask the question, was the person, in this case Van Tassel, also being defrauded by his alleged contacts? You know, I think that's an important um, point to make. Uh, I've actually been out to the Integratron. It's in um, Landis, California, out in the desert, and only a very, very short drive, like five minutes or so, from Giant Rock, where Van Tassel put these yearly conferences on. Um, His basic story was that in the early 50s, he was contacted astrally um, by aliens and, again, um, traveled to their spaceship in astral form. But then not long afterwards, they actually sort of manifested in physical form um, where he was living out of Giant Rock. And, um, he, again, he was prompted to put on these huge conferences which, which at one point were actually attracting audiences in the figure of 11 to 12,000 a year. Uh, at each conference, you know, which is 12,000? 12,000, yep. Open air conferences just out oh, in the shit. desert, you know, people just sit around listening to their lectures. And um, he said that the, the Space Brothers had told him to build this building, which was known as, was going to be known as the Integratron. The Integratron basically looks like an observatory, you know, a, an astronomical observatory, like a, a large domed building and it's on two floors. You can go in there and they have various meditative um, sessions in the upper chamber now, which you can go to and you know check it out and, and take part, and uh, lectures in there and things like that. The idea uh, was basically that when the Integratron was completed, that it would have the ability to rejuvenate human cells and, and, by default, extend the human lifespan. This was sort of never really explained how it would do that, and the reason being that um, Fantastic died, ironically, before he could he could finish it. But in terms of it being a building and a structure that you can go in, yes, that is complete. Um, What's actually interesting about it, he was actually a very skilled person because there are actually no nuts, bolts, screws, nails in it at all. It's just all kind of like an interlocking building. Um, So it was very, very well designed in that respect. Now, of course, whether or not the experiences were literally real, um, that's the big question. By Van Sassel's own admission, um, many of his experiences were initiated either via channeling, meditation, and putting his body into an altered state where he felt his astral form could leave his body. So again, it's not as clear-cut as many people thought of people just going out into the desert and meeting aliens. There was this very much definitive, otherworldly, alternative aspect to it. Like George Hunt Williamson, most of his early contacts with the space brothers were supposedly done by Ouija boards.
0: Oh, jeez.
2: So, you know, it's, it's a very strange movement in that
1: respect. And the minute you say Ouija boards, what I've read about that thing, it, 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 it's kind of like the ultimate trickster interface to humanity, where essentially if it comes out of a Ouija board, you have to basically assume it's deception.
2: Yeah.
1: Essentially. Uh, oh, boy. then this is, I mean, I personally, this is where I get so frustrated because what ends up happening is that you have all of these... Different realms crashing into one another, and it's—you'd think that by looking at all of them and trying to synthesize common aspects, you get closer to understanding. But I think what ends up happening is that essentially, you you twist yourself into a tighter and tighter pretzel, and you don't get Soft any pretzel. understanding. Well, yeah, with uh, with with
0: extra salt and garlic from Philadelphia. <laughs> You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days. But the real question is, how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call one 596 6134 That number again, one 596 6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two G's. Goldbug.com.
2: Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedny. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri?
0: By the way, before we twist ourselves, Nicholas Redfern, author of Contact Ease, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, joining us. David?
1: Well, I just I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to think that perhaps this is all about the noise. Oh, this is where I'm going to really go off the deep end here. Here I go. Okay. I'm ready. I'm there's no safety net here. Maybe the form of the noise itself, maybe understanding what the noise is. Maybe that's the signal because they're like, there's like, this is the thing, Nick. I mean, you, you read your book and it seems like, like I was saying before, you have these things crashing together. You have basically, uh, people who are in a fragile state who discover self-redemption through some kind of perhaps delusional episode Mm -hmm. and then you have drugs coming into play and then you have uh, these operatives that are exploiting these people and so what ends up happening is that it's almost as if if there is any truth in there it's so deeply buried that actually it's, it's protecting itself
2: yeah No, I actually agree with that. I think that there is a genuine phenomenon, um, but we are seeing, we're either only seeing part of it or we're seeing it how it wants to appear for us. And I think that goes for, you know, that could go for the government angle as well. But as far as the core experience is concerned, I don't for one minute believe any of the contactees met long haired aliens from Venus, Mars, or wherever. And I have grave doubts about whether or not abductions are a physical reality, or if it is like the contactees, possibly some sort of, I won't say internal, because that makes it sound like I'm talking about fantasy-prone people, I'm not. I'm wondering if there's an external intelligence that is actually able to, I guess, manifest imagery and situations to where it appears literally real to the participants, but nothing physical is actually occurring to them.
1: Well, now you're, in the, now you're in the matrix, though, because, see, that, that then puts you in the place where now you can say, well, if we go down that road, we can doubt the veracity of the reality of everything.
2: Well, you know, maybe we should. You know? <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's one of these things where we have to admit that no matter what we do, the UFO subject always defies explanation. We never get hard evidence, you know, no matter how many UFOs have allegedly crashed, there is not one bit of anomalous material that has has been proven to be definitively extraterrestrial. There's something about the subject that is, I guess, almost like tantalizingly ethereal and is able to, you know, avoid detection and avoid being resolved. And I think when you get something like this that doesn't necessarily react the way you'd expect a physical nuts-and-bolts phenomenon to react, even though it looks like that, then I think we do need to go down other pathways that suggest maybe what we're perceiving as being physical and the encounters as being physical could actually be something radically different.
1: But at the same time, then we do have things like radar data. We do have things uh, like the infamous... Uh, Iranian uh, fighter Mm. episode of 76, you have a number of cases that clearly, I I think, and I think one could make a very strong argument, that Mm -hmm. do present evidence that that, uh, in a court of law would be considered tangible. If if you've got radar data, that's real stuff.
2: No, I, I agree with you on that. I think what I would say, though, this comes more into play with the whole idea that the phenomenon itself can't necessarily be related to as as one giant phenomenon. I think, you know, just because an object may be tracked on radar and it's a literal physical object doesn't necessarily mean that has any connection with small little grey guys abducting people in the middle of the night. It's just our perception that the two are connected. So I think that's an important, you know, point to remember that an object may well be flying through the skies, it may well be unidentified and and even extraterrestrial. But I would argue that we shouldn't take the leap that because something unidentified is flying through our skies, that it's at midnight it's going to hover over Mrs. Smith's house in New York State or whatever.
0: All right, so that implies, of course, there are different types of phenomena at work here. We have maybe physical craft from somewhere, Mm -hmm. and then we have the contactees, abductees, and a lot of strange stuff that may fit Mm -hmm. into a different category. But for whatever reason, we just happen to pigeonhole into the same place right now.
2: Yes, I I think I think that happens. Um, And I think, you know, unfortunately, that happens in all sorts of realms of the paranormal. You know, somebody who investigates haunted houses goes into a haunted house and he is the floorboards creaking on the floor upstairs. Well, just because the house is allegedly haunted, it doesn't mean that the creaking of the floorboards is due to the presence of a ghost. It could be the structure of the house. But there's a tendency to, or a suggestibility, that the two have to be connected. And there's there's no reason why they should be.
1: If you uh, look at what some of this research that these guys have done turns up, you have things like consistent physical uh, traces of uh, things like these scoop marks uh, Mm. that uh, apparently do have consistency or these uh, triangular patterns of dots on people's skin after they supposedly have some of these uh, experiences mm-hmm. where uh, you know that does seem to indicate some sort of a physical reality to it. Mm. And um, when you look at stuff like that, even if you take away the whole issue of people's perception, I mean, it's one thing to perceive that something happened and maybe there was psychological um, aberration at play, but when you have things like consistent scars on bodies, and mm-hmm. I think that sort of throws it in, into a whole different place. And what I've always found very um sort of odd about the abduction thing is what appear to be just the sheer numbers. Mm-hmm. I know speaking to Bud Hopkins, you know he he's looked in, into what I suspect are thousands of cases, mm-hmm. and those are just people willing to come forward to him. You know, mm-hmm. if you statistically look at that, and then say, okay, you know. What does that really represent in terms of numbers? I know I know, uh, Bud and David have come up with some rather large numbers. I don't know whether or not they can potentially really defend those numbers, but we're, we're talking about a lot of people. And so even if you compare this to the contactee thing, where, again, with the contactees, it's like they had an agenda in terms of coming up with a story and going public and turning their lives around and getting attention that they never had and in some cases, forming actual cults and getting the babes. Certainly, you can't point to a single, I don't think a single situation where someone who claims to be an abductee has enjoyed those same kinds of benefits from going public. So, I, I, yeah, it's two different. I think it's two very different things in many ways.
2: Well, I think it is different in many ways. And I would say that the experience and the effects of the experience are very different. But, you know, whether we're talking about contactees, abductees, fairy encounters 500 years ago, biblical accounts, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, it all involves interaction with higher entities where the person is in some respects either changed or taken somewhere, shown something, but never is never able to come back with hard evidence from the experience. It's just mm-hmm. a story. You know, there are a lot of stories about contactees, for example, Angelucci claimed to uh, been on one of the craft and actually took something with him off the craft. And uh, as he was driving ho- at home, it kind of just disintegrated or vanished in his hand. There are a lot of stories in abductions where people have tried to take something only to be thwarted by the aliens at the last minute. People who tried to take objects and mementos from the fairy kingdom, they were dissolving, like magically dissolved before they got home. You know, the, there seems to be something which, in my mind, is an intelligence amongst us. And yes, there are certain radical differences between the abductees and the contactees. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be also a central motif at work as well. I think.
1: What do you think is really potentially behind that central motif? If you had to guess.
2: Mm-hmm if i had to guess i would say there's sort of like a a silent partner amongst us on the earth which which is definitively alien in the sense that it's not human now whether it's extraterrestrial or not that's a different matter but definitively alien that seems to require or demand contact with the human race where But contact is the primary force and motivation behind it, and instilling change at an individual and sometimes a collective level is part of that whole operation. Now, the weird thing is, of course, that they seem often to to choose people who really aren't in a position to to radically change the entire world. Uh, it's almost like they're playing games with us as if we're just, you know, a tool for, for their entertainment and maybe there there is that aspect to it. But that is my core belief that there's like an intelligence that interacts with us that provokes change usually you know for the better as far as the person's concerned but who knows you know what the actual motivation is now as i said whether it's alien i I truthfully don't know in terms of being extraterrestrial or not
0: Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 Or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
2: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paragast.
0: We're talking with Nicholas Redford, an author of Contact Ease, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. We have time for a few more questions before we have to let him go. And I'm pleased that he's here for pretty much a full session of the Powercast, as opposed to being one of a member of a panel or joining us with regard to eulogies. This is something where we're trying to figure out what's going on. From here, having gone through this research to find out what's going on with the contactee movement, did anything in what you expected to happen change?
2: Yes. I think, you know, I I was actually quite surprised by the sheer number of contactees who either wittingly or unwittingly, did seem to have government connections in their stories. Um, pretty much all of them did. Now, as I said, whether that means they were deceptive players themselves or they were innocent dupes, or, you know, some were fell into one camp and some into the other, I'm not sure. But there actually weren't that many of the major contactees who hadn't crossed paths with the intelligence services in some capacity. Now, you know, how we interpret that, I don't know, but that was sort of a a big surprise. I was aware of one or two, like Adamski and Van Tassel, where the allegations had been made. But, you know, the thing with, like, Angelucci and the army guys and the restaurants, stuff like that, little-known stories, that sort of really did surprise me.
0: Looking at that, knowing that you've seen cases, gotten information that basically was other than maybe what you expected. Does that also change your viewpoint about what causes the whole thing? What was your viewpoint starting the research, the beginning of the process? What did you expect? In terms of what the Contactee movement was all about, having learned the differences, the surprises, the things you didn't anticipate, how does that change, if anyway, how does that change your conclusion about what it means?
2: Well, unfortunately, like a lot of the UFO subjects, I think it's changed it to where there's more confusion. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's actually enlightened me more than it's kind of confused me further you know because so many people in the ufo field and even i'm guilty of this you know when i was say 20 or whatever i thought the contactees stories were nonsense i look at them now with with the sort of mindset that i don't believe the literal interpretation but there's clearly something going on possibly from several several different angles but again as i said that just confuses the situation because it suggests we've only really sort of scratched the surface as to what was going on we haven't really resolved the matter in terms of laying it to rest one way or the other. And, and unfortunately, the UFO subject seems to have a habit of doing that. The more we look into something, the more questions we get than answers. And I would say that's that's typical of the contactees as well.
1: It sort of makes one believe we'll never actually understand this.
2: Well, you know, that's what I say about it being manipulative and kind of ethereal almost. It's We're always sort of one step behind the phenomenon, and when we catch up with it, it changes. You know, I find that sort of significant and, and sort of beyond just nuts and bolts craft, if you like.
1: Well, there's the, uh, there's the one statement in page 146, uh, and correct me on the pronunciation, is it Skirmer or Shermer?
2: Oh, Shermer. Howard,
1: Shermer. Uh, Herbert Shermer, yeah. Yeah, Shermer, the police officer who had this uh, really odd encounter, and is told something that there's, and it, I think there's, there's, there's a clue there where he's told, "We want you to believe in us, but not too much." Yeah,
3: yeah,
2: that's I don't not know. like a classic. quote, no. um, but it's sort of confusing as well. Isn't it? Uh,
1: I, I think that if we were to try to unravel this enigma, I think there's a major clue there, the, a huge clue, and I think that ultimately, for me personally. That clue would, to me, say that uh, this is very likely we're dealing with something that is here with us that doesn't want us to know that it's here with us because of how we'd react. And your book kind of, in, in many ways, sort of confirms this for me that, and I'm, right, I'm going to fall right into the Mac camp with this, in that, uh, you know, if, if you had something, let's say, that was coexisting on the planet with us, they would very much want us to think they came from far away. Mm-hmm. That strategically, that would make a tremendous amount of sense because basically, the implication that they're they're coming from far away means they come, they do whatever they're going to do, and then they leave.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think that there's an appeal to human insecurity issues. That well, if they leave, then at least they go away. Mm-hmm. Where whereas if we thought that they were, for example, living under the the crust of the planet and uh, and were maybe, for lack of a better way of saying it they were at the top of the evolutionary or food chain, uh, this is not something that would sit very well with humans and uh, with any humans anywhere. And that if you wanted to find reasons for government secrecy around all this stuff, that one could make a very good argument that perhaps some faction within the government has actually figured out that this is what's going on. And now they say, well, okay, this is a really good reason to spread disinformation information and to keep the confusion going because, man, we don't want people to think that, A, we're not at the top of the evolutionary pyramid on this planet and, and potentially even more damning, which as I think more about this stuff, as I read more about it, uh, you know, I personally feel strongly at this point, and I have nothing to back this up necessarily. It's just an intuition that it's a very high likelihood that human beings, Homo sapiens sapien, is a an engineered species that we've been manipulated. And that we can't know this. Uh, one one could definitely make the argument for that. And and again, I don't know that I believe it or not. But mm-hmm. you know, as as my own thinking about this stuff goes, and the more we speak to people like yourself, I'm going more in that direction. And and because to me that explains the government secrecy, separate from the factions within the government that exploit situations in order to test things out, in order to play mental games with people, to have basically this big outdoor laboratory in which to work with mind manipulation and control games, I think there is a level of secrecy that's beyond that, that really is trying to sort of keep us from knowing too much for our own good.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah i think I think there's actually something to that you know the idea that many UFO researchers hold, the simplistic view that the governments are the bad people and they're the ones trying to get the truth out it may well be that there could be ironically good reasons as to why the truth has been withheld from us and if it is sort of disturbing things like these beings moving amongst us as as Mac talks about in his book then you could understand why somebody might go down that path you know my view is that we should still be told the truth but I would at least have an understanding of why perhaps, somebody 50 years ago put into place you know, a kind of approach that's to be followed and um, this is what we're gonna say and this is what we're not gonna say. I can understand why that would have happened. And I think you're quite right also that it would be far more disturbing for people to know that there could be very human-like beings, you know, moving amongst us and I guess to some extent, slightly camouflaged, but having the ability to go about their their business without, I say, actually realizing we've been infiltrated to a degree, which you know sounds kind of ominous, and maybe maybe it should sound kind of ominous.
0: Well, the other question being, of course, we know apparently if we can believe a few of these claims and about some of the strange stories attached to them like Angelucci, mm. like Howard Menger that maybe the government is working in concert with this other force, these other beings they mm. know they are here, they're allowing them to do things and they sow the seeds of confusion just because they want us not to discover what's really going on all the well, great conspiracies Well, the
2: to read Maxwell when it comes out you'll like that one
0: <laughs> you know, you might as well have to give us a hint of Mac's book because I gather you've read it.
2: Yes, I have. Yeah, it's it's a very good book, and it, it, it's basically like a good, solid study of the idea that an aspect of the UFO phenomenon is Earth-based. I mean, there's no secret about this. You know, that that's the the, the broad theme of the book: the idea that there are, you know, as an ancient indigenous uh, race of beings on the Earth. That ingeniously passes itself off as extraterrestrial to move amongst us to do what it needs to do and to avoid detection and that it uses manipulation and deception to do so. And he, you know, he obviously fills the book with with cases and and thoughts and ideas and quotes to to back up this particular theory. And uh, I think, I think the most important thing about Mac's book is that, you know, he's not just not going with the party line for the sake of it but he's actually doing it because he's got something worthwhile to say and that he's actually put in kind of like a new, fresh approach on a subject, which in many respects, the UFO subject, he's sort of getting tired and old, you know, he's injecting... New blood into it and making us think about other possibilities beyond just wondering which star system the aliens are coming from, etc.
0: Well, that's the thing, too, of course. That's been part of the problem of UFO field, mm-hmm. where lots of people say, okay, they're spaceships. Let's speculate where they're from. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute. Let's have an exopolitics movement so we know how to deal with them politically.
2: Yeah, I mean, none of this is to me is feasible or doable when we don't even really know what we're dealing with. You know, that, that's that's the, the big irony of the UFO subject. It's it's kind of trying to determine whether God is an old guy with long hair and a beard and how he manages to sit on clouds all day. You know, but that's just a belief system. <laughs> you know, a belief system that people hold, and it's no different to the UFO subject. People have developed belief systems based around cases,
1: right? And belief systems, like you know, we know are—they are, don't tell you anything about objective reality. They tell you about people's psychologies. That's it. Yeah,
2: you know, they, they need to believe in something. Right, right, and, and, well, I think everybody,
1: you know, some people believe in rock and roll, man. I think we that's actually of, of anything to believe in. You know, believing in music <laughs> is probably the the most productive belief. I would believe that. And isn't it interesting how music has always been at the center of all religious belief?
2: Yeah. Oh, you're right.
1: Definitely. Fascinating stuff. I mean, that's that's what we're going to find out. Ultimately, I think is what Kurt Vonnegut wrote in his la- his very last book. May he rest in peace. It was a, it was a fairly negative book about the human condition in many ways. But the one thing he said that I'm so absolutely in agreement with was he said the one good thing humans have done is music. That's it. And I'm I'm right there with
0: him on that one. I mean, you know, except for of course that those chords in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. No,
1: that's what? No, that's that's okay. It's the chords themselves are not bad. You know, talk about the context of the
2: chords, not the chords. You know, speaking m- of
0: which, in the Contact D movement. Does music play any part at all?
2: Yeah, it does, actually. Howard Menger released an album of uh, music, as it was called. <laughs> um, and um, I think it
0: sold three copies to him, his <laughs> wife, and one of his children. <laughs>
2: But, uh, yeah, I mean, actually, a number of people in the contactee movement did release records. And, you know, you also find, of course, you know, this has been well documented. A lot of people in the rock music industry had UFO experiences and sightings, things like that. And uh, I think, you know, this, this sort of goes in hand in glove almost with... You know, people sent thousands of years ago shamanic experiences going into an altered state to music and then having visions. You know, there's, there's actually not that much difference between cranking yeah. up the CD player and hitting whatever and having an unusual experience to what those guys might have been doing in the South American jungle 2,000, 3,000 years ago.
1: Well, and especially, uh, you know, consuming some strange leaves that made you feel funny and see yeah. weird things.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, It's just. What goes on today is just a, a modern equivalent of what went on then, and, and perhaps that's what the UFO movement's about. It's it's forever changing as we change.
0: So uh, it's here to change with the culture for what purpose?
2: Well, I, I don't know if it... I, I, I mean, the purpose, in, in simple terms, seems to be provoking change at an individual level and then encouraging these individuals to go out and spread the word and the collective... Bigger level. However, it doesn't really seem anything much has changed overall. If they're going to do that, why don't they just land if they're extraterrestrials and and say this is what we're going to do? It might be sort of like almost like a fascist approach, but they could do that. I'm quite sure they could come from point A to point B, if of course that's what's going on. Then again maybe they want us to think that because they really are crypto terrestrials and so you know it, it kind of protects their turf on earth to try and provoke the idea that we should all live in peace and harmony But it's, maybe that's not actually what they want for us they're doing it because it helps them it's like a you know a selfish understandable approach to take maybe we're seeing the proper picture maybe the picture we're seeing is A distortion based around something that's self serving from their perspective. But people don't want that. You know, I have to be ambiguous because I truthfully don't know. But people people want me to sort of say, which planet are they coming from and why are they here and where's the Roswell wreckage stored? You know, (laughs) we can't answer those sort of questions as much as we'd love to.
1: Well, no, we get back to people wanting the Reader's Digest version. They want things because they've been conditioned by the media that this is their window onto the world. That everything is explainable in simple sound bites that you can boil things down. We were talking. Uh, There's a little preamble to show. We we're talking about polar thinking, where if you can make it simple, uh, then the majority can understand it because subtleties are apparently lost on most people, and especially when it comes to things as mysterious as enigmatic as this topic. It's almost as if people need the simple answer because anything beyond the simple answer, they just can't go there because it's, it's just it. They don't have The mental capacity. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it that way. Uh, There was a member of our forums that said, well, if you want to understand what's really going on, David, just understand that most of the world consists of idiots. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, I don't want to, you know, I I don't really want to believe that. I know that there's certainly there's a lot of evidence to support that theory.
0: One year to be president? Well, uh, oh please, oh God. Um, well, there's somebody who wrote the book. You can't argue with idiots who. Well, I don't want to get into that.
1: Well, and you can't
0: because you'll never win. And
1: but but the point is that, yeah, ultimately, it, it's funny because people talk about uh, disclosure and what what we've what we've said on the show and we've had this out with Bassett and and his ilk is that. You assume that you know what disclosure consists of. You assume that you know what the nature of the information being withheld is. But what if it's not what you expect it to be?
2: No, I was going to say. What I actually wonder with with disclosure, if if real disclosure actually took place, ironically, I sometimes wonder that what it would be. The government would be say, would say something along the lines of. Yeah, we've been hiding, you know, a load of files, and here they are, you know, 500,000 pages. We've got a lot of reports, but at the end of the day, we really don't know what's going on. You know, they've got a lot of reports in the same way that the UFO research community has a lot of reports, but no real answers. Well, you know, if they they
0: did disclose it, we would say it's not really disclosure. They're hiding things from us because they don't know or they claim they don't know. They really do know. We're just about out of time. Again, we've had Nicholas Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of... Alien human interaction, and from what we can see in the book, it's a lot more complicated than just meeting up with pretty looking Venusians, females, and males, but may have a lot more at stake there. Nick Redfern, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast.
2: Well, thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Nick. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the
0: Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.